Ladies and gentlemen, the broadcast season is over, and I want to say we were to having a some fun here every week. Just a minute, Chico. Don't say having some fun. Say having. Pronounce the G. All right, all right. G, we was having a some fun. <laughs> The Marx Brothers Council Podcast presents The Jay Hopkins Interviews, Volume 5, Nat Parent. Hi again, everyone. This is Bob Gassell, and I'm here along with Noah Diamond. We're really sorry that Matthew couldn't be with us here today, but, uh, you know, social distancing rules are what they are. So, how you doing today, Noah? I'm doing fine. I'm happy to be here with you fellas. Oh, you're looking dapper in that, uh, that uh, John Lennon cap there. Yes, that's because underneath this hat, I have quarantine caveman hair. Anyhow, welcome to the final installment of Vintage Interviews from the archives of Marx Brotherhood founder, Jay Hopkins. Today, we travel back to... Want to help me here, Jay? June of 1984. June of 84. And Jay's talk with Marx Brothers writer, Nat Perrin. Perrin's connection with the Marxes lasted a half century. He started with them as an uncredited contributor to Monkey Business. He helped create the Flywheel Shyster and Flywheel radio series, where many of the gags were later recycled by the team, uh, particularly in Duck Soup. He then moved on to MGM, where he contributed gags to the pre-filming tour of Go West and wrote the first draft of what later became The Big Store. Uh Perrin remained close with Groucho through the years and was even named his conservator uh, towards the end when Erin Fleming was asked to remove herself from the place of residence. Perrin had quite a successful career outside the Marxes, writing for Burns and Allen, Abbott and Costello, among others. He later had uh, major success on TV with uh, My Friend Irma, Death Valley Days, and uh, The Adams Family. So, before we get on to the interview, let's bring in the man himself. Here he is, the one, the only, Nat Perrin. No, 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 I mean, no. You meant, oh. uh, you meant oh. the other guy. <laughs> oh, okay, okay, okay. Oh, oh we got Jay? Okay, uh, Jay. Yeah, yeah. What, it's, it's oh, Jay. Jay. Okay, Jay. Hi, Jay. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of the uh, oddest introductions I've ever had. Thank you very much. <laughs> and I'm sure you've had plenty of odd ones, so... <laughs> Not enough to suit me. <laughs> so, as always, we like to get a little background uh, here. Tell us about how you first came in contact with uh, Nat and set up this interview. Well, he was uh, gracious enough to see me. That's the key thing. I mean, it wouldn't have done me any good to try to arrange an interview if he refused to see me. But um, luckily, he did. And he was a very gracious host. He allowed me into his home in Los Angeles. And... Um, I, you know, I just remember uh, him being very open, being very receptive to my questioning, and, you know, just a, a nice guy. He seems like a nice guy. It's always been my impression from his Marx Brothers interviews and when you see him in documentaries or the way Steve Stolier and others have written about him. He seems like one of the real decent guys in the Marx Brothers story. Yes, yes, I believe he was. I, I subsequently phoned him after this because... There is a friend of mine who told me that he was hoping to write a book about Duck Soup. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how serious he was. I don't think he was too serious. But I did bother to uh, get through to Nat to 
touch base to see if he would be receptive to an interview with my friend. And he was receptive, but nothing came of it. You know, Jay, we really should appreciate how great this is that we have a an interview with uh, one of the creative uh, forces from the Marx's prime era. You know, by the 80s, everybody was pretty much gone. We did have a few performers left, like Kitty Carlisle and Ellen Jones, people like that. But as far as the creative team goes, uh, there weren't many people left. Oh, yes. And I think he was an exceptionally placed or uniquely placed subject because, as you point out, he went all the way back to monkey business in 31. He wrote on that film. In fact, that's what led him to come out to California, as you gentlemen know. Mm-hmm. And then to have your final interaction with Groucho to be in such a pivotal role as conservator of the estate and to become more or less a, a traffic cop and trying to control who was allowed to see Groucho and making sure that the Arthur Marks side did not mix with the Aaron Fleming side. I mean, that was a very important and uh, a vital role that he he played. Absolutely. So, yes, he's, he's a very unique subject, is what I'm trying to say. I love the fact that he didn't necessarily have his his sights set on show business success that he he was a law student when he just happened to try his hand at writing something for Groucho and Chico and it led to this brilliant career but when you hear him talk and and uh, get to know who he was a little bit he he comes across very much like the earnest young law student that he was now he was obviously a first class writer and producer and creative person um, but uh, there's something he, he seems to have always been kind of the, uh, the new kid on the block, and um, there's something very sincere about him. Yes, I agree. Well, enough of our yapping. Let's, uh, let's get to the meat of this thing here, and let's uh, hop into the Wayback Machine once again, fellas, and go back to June of 1984, and here's Jay's talk with Nat Perrin. Anyway, you're going to have to... Uh, refresh my memory of exactly what you did do as far as the Marx Brothers films. I know you worked on Duck Soup. I worked on Duck Soup, and uh, my very first assignment out here, I was very young, was Monkey Business. I came out and worked on that, and I contributed some scenes. I didn't get a screenplay credit. Uh, If I'd known then what I know now about credits and the rights, I probably could have gotten at least additional dialogue credit, but I was just glad to be on the team, even though I was a utility player. Did they send and, uh, for you, or parents? Uh, I was going to law school in New York, and while I was studying for the bar, I got some little idea that I thought would make a funny sketch, and I liked the Marxists who, who had appeared in only two pictures up to that time, mm-hmm. Coconuts and Animal Crackers, which were just film versions of stage plays. Mm-hmm. And I wrote the sketch out, and through one contact or another, I was able to uh, present it to Roger Marx. They were appearing personally at the Albee Theater in Brooklyn, New York, mm-hmm. with their picture, Animal Crackers. He read the sketch, and he liked it enough to offer me a job to come to California, because that's yeah. where they were going the following week. Uh-huh. And it just turned out that the bar exam was on Monday and Tuesday of that next week. Mm-hmm. And they were leaving on Wednesday, and I was on the train with them. I was, really? That was all there was to it. Yeah. 
Amazon friend came out and worked on monkey business. And I, I worked on duck soup and monkey business and um, the, uh, my, my, I did the original story for the big store. Oh, yeah. By that time I was a producer at Metro mm -hmm. and I did that for them and we went from there and some writers for the screenplay. I also had done 26 broadcasts for the Marxes. Is that Flywheel? Shasta yeah, flywheel? yeah. And um, I did some work on um, Go West. I was a producer then too. When I came in kind of as amicus curiae, I went to um, Chicago and Detroit after they were already there with their writer, who was Irving Brecker, who had done a number of things for them. And Irving and I worked on the four big scenes that they tried out. They would take four or five big scenes from a picture taken on the road for about three, four weeks. And I worked on that with them. And uh, that was pretty much all I So, you came out with them uh, in 31, right? Yeah. And were they more or less collecting writers at that point to prepare themselves <coughs> for Hollywood? Uh, I think it's, it's remarkable that you saw no, them backstage and you yeah, off the next yeah. week. It was a, about a, an eight-page sketch. No, um, they already had two writers out here working on that script. and. They were coming west. I joined them in New York, where they started. All their families, everybody came. That was the trek west. Mm -hmm. And they were picking up Arthur Sheikman, who had already collaborated with Groucho on a, uh, Groucho's first book, I think it was Beds. Mm -hmm. uh, Arthur Sheikman was a columnist for the Chicago Sun, I think it was. And he got on the train with us at Chicago. He joined us on the train. And he came uh, west. Then, during the course of it, uh, they had one or two fellows who did some little bit of gagging on the picture. Mm -hmm. One was an old vaudeville actor that they knew for many years. And another was a cartoonist, uh, oh, Jay, yeah. Car Jay Carver Pusey. But the, um, the first two guys who were already out here, in fact, the screenplay was finished when we were S.J. Perlman, you've heard of S.J. Mm -hmm. Perlman, sure. and a, another cartoonist, famous cartoonist at that time, Will B. Johnston. That's right. And um, they read the script the first night we arrived. There was a meeting at the Roosevelt Hotel. We all stayed at the Roosevelt in Hollywood. There was a reading of the script, and it wasn't a very happy moment. No. They realized that they would have to do a total rewrite, start from scratch from page one. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what, what happened. The Will B. Johnson sort of fell by the wayside. And Arthur Sheikman and S.J. Perlman kind of shared the ball between them. Mm -hmm. They were running with the ball. They would do the first pages. Mm -hmm. And I was behind them. And uh, some scenes worked, some scenes didn't. And uh, I would get special assignments to write scenes, sequences, etc. And that's pretty much how it worked. Uh, the second film that you made, uh, did you get screen credit then? The, the second one was Duck Soup. Oh, it was Duck Soup. Yeah. So there's there's a two-year yeah. hiatus in between. Yeah, well, I, uh, I did a, a show out here.
I was finished when they started doing the other things. I went to I went to Metro. They got me the job at Metro, oh. and I did some pictures at Metro. Right after I finished my work on uh, monkey business, I went to Metro and I was there for about a year and a half. Then I did the show, and then when they were going back for the broadcast, they called me again, and I joined Arthur Sheikh. We did the broadcast, and there were another team of writers that helped. Sheikman and I were the first team, sort of, and the other two fellows, a man who later became a well-known screenplay writer, George Oppenheimer, yes. and uh, a fellow named Tom McKnight. Tom, there's a funny story connected with the hiring of Tom McKnight. We were in New York, we had done a few shows already, and it was very difficult work for us to do a script every week for such special people yeah. as Groucho yeah. and Chico. And Groucho was at the, some New York theater one night and was intermission. And he was down in the men's room. And he was at one of the urinals. And somebody recognized what was talking about how things. He said, well, we're here in New York, you know, doing some radio things. And he said, how's it going? He said, well, we're having a tough time. We're looking for one more writer. And from the booth, from one of the booths, there was a voice, I know just the guy for you. And this fellow came with his pants half off, half on, and he said he knew just the guy, and the guy turned out to be Tom McKnight, who was very good. And, and uh, That was him in the stall? No, it oh, was a kind it was of an agent, or one agent. of the Broadway characters. The agents never read. Yeah, and that's how we got Tom McKnight on the show. Tom McKnight went on and did a lot of television work and became producer of television. Yeah. And um, we... Uh, Arthur Sheikman and I, of course, when we became partners, we went off on other pictures. Uh, I became producer at Metro. That's how I got involved in uh, Go West and um, the big store. I did some several pictures of Metro as a producer. Did you right? seek out those later Merck's projects? Or? No, we were friends, and, and I was always... They made those pictures, a number of those pictures after I finished. Mm -hmm. I, I was at Metro. They were at the same studio by that mm -hmm. time, so I was always around. Yeah. I'd always see them. It was one of these things that, you know, you were part of a yeah. sort of family, and yeah. you knew what the script was, and if you had suggestions, or they called you in. And um, that's the way it kind of worked. It was a very informal Groucho has mentioned that he's, uh, well, he had lost interest in filming after Thalbert died. And I think it shows in their, their work. It's quite possible. And, well, I was going to ask you if you could compare their, their enthusiasm or lack thereof from um, when you worked with them on Monkey Business when they first came out in The Big Star. Did well, you notice any change? Yeah, well, there, were, there was enthusiasm, and uh, they were pretty good workers. Uh, they were a little difficult to marshal and to organize um, because they were kind of swinging guys. Groucho was always, he was there. And he interested himself in the scripts. Chico and Harpo just looked out for themselves, especially Harpo. Mm -hmm. His part was hardly written in, you know, in detail. Yes. And so he worked on things, and whatever Harpo did, it fitted one way or another. Um, uh, they, they were very agreeable guys, I would say. But they had enough enthusiasm. They, they did their jobs. Um, I would say that they had a, an enormous respect for Thorberg, and, and well, they should have, because 
he was the first one who understood that as wild as comedy may be, it's always best to hang it on a sound storyline. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, others thought, oh, it's Marxist, anything goes, you know, yeah. you don't need plot, you don't need structure. And uh, you did need plot, you did need structure. Yes. But, you know, I wasn't a bad producer, and none of the boys that wrote the stuff were producers. And the produ- producers just didn't think so. They didn't quite dig them as the writers did. But instinctively, Thorberg understood that. So it shows. Yes. I think his two pictures are far yes. away. Too well, how do you account for the fact that opera and races are still well received today, and yet films like At the Circus and the others just aren't as favored? Because the others are better. Opera is a better picture and can stand more viewings than the circus and, the, and some of the others. They just work better. Yeah. Don't you think that some of the uh, concern about the plot with the later films seemed to dictate the comedy? It seemed to almost eclipse the comedy in the later films. I, I, I thought the plots were very weak in the, in the others. I forget Thorberg was head of the studio, really. Yeah. It was just as important as Mayer. He got what he wanted. There was size. There was time. They, they got good songwriters. They got everything yeah. they wanted for those pictures. I think they probably. And he those... was a guy that could hold the reins. And the other, yeah. the others were just wanted to make the pictures cheaper. The Marx pictures didn't gross enormously. They were not real top stars yeah. all through the country. They hit the big cities pretty well, but you got beyond that. They, mm-hmm. It wasn't the same uh, following. And um, so most of the others were mainly concerned with making the pictures at a price and getting them, up, getting them out, hoping they could get it over into profit. But Thorberg wouldn't lend it himself to, or his name to anything that yeah. was designed just yeah. a quick buck. Right. It had to have quality. And so it's true that uh, when Thorberg fell out of the picture, uh, something went out of the hole. I wonder if you could speak briefly about your work with their radio show. How did that come about? It seems like a strange notion. I have no idea. You have no idea. Suddenly, I got called. They said they're going to do some radio work in New York. Was I free? I happened to be free at the time. And they offered me the job, and I went back to New York. And first of all, I was very eager to go to New York. My family was there, and I was going to be paid this time. And uh, I knew it would be a number of weeks in New York, and that excited me very much. And I just jumped at the opportunity and went right, I think it was the next day, or a few days later, I don't remember that. that Presume you had a pretty good rapport with Sheikman. Yeah, we became uh, partners, regular collaborators on other things, too, aside from the March yeah. weather things. Such as what? Well, we went on, we were in the contract of Sam Bolton and Freddie Cantor pictures mm. for years. Mm-hmm. Uh, we stayed together about five years, and the only reason uh, I still was at uh, his uh, widow's home, strange calling of a widow, has been dead many years, she goes with another man now, but they had a party Saturday night, Gloria, she was Gloria Stewart, she was a well-known That's actor. right, she was no, in The Invisible no. Man. In that's right, that's right. We, uh, we were at Gloria's house Saturday night. The, uh, Gloria's daughter and son-in-law and their three grand, four grandchildren were there and a lot of friends, about 40 people. So we've always 
remain friends. The only reason uh, we separated, we didn't break up, separated at the time, was that our agent at the time was a pretty shrewd guy. He realized that when you were a team, you would sometimes they, the studio would have to choose between taking writer X or Sheikman and Perrin. Well, to him, it was another writer, you know. Yeah, yeah. So it was the same amount of money, yeah. and he felt he could get us the same. He could get us individually as much as we're making collectively. Mm -hmm. And it was true. So we decided, well, you know, we double our salaries, and he guaranteed that, and he made good on it. So we both went off, and we worked on our own, but we always remained very close friends and our families and everything else. I think we could talk a little bit about the... Uh Ed Fleming, Mark's trial. Now you were um, assigned as what was it? I was a conservator. Conservator. Yeah. Which meant that you did what? You simply looked after Groucho for a period there? Or? Yeah, I was responsible for his uh, well-being, mm -hmm. for his person. He was very ill, unable to yeah. take care of himself. So was he staying here? He was. <clears throat> if he wasn't home, he was not. Oh, so you simply made he was sure spent, that he was I'd say two-thirds of the time he was home, maybe a little more, and a good part of the time he was in the hospital. He was in the hospital two or three times yeah. during the period that I was his conservator. I'm a, it's been some time since that took place, and I'm a little confused. Why did he need a conservator at that point? Was well, he was unable to care for himself. He was sort of out of things. Yeah. He was semi out of things. Yeah. He was bedridden totally. But by that time the family had already instigated their litigation and that's why uh, Aaron was no longer looking after his concerns. Uh, there were two litigations. One to remove her from the position of dominance in his life. Mm -hmm. I think she was temporary conservator. She got herself. Oh, that's, that's where I came. They wanted her removed and they wanted her replaced, preferably by them, mm -hmm. by Arthur or somebody of their choice. Uh, well, uh, there could be no agreement in that area, but apparently the judge was ready to remove her, but he was not quite ready to appoint one of them. Mm -hmm. uh, that would have probably prejudiced any future yeah. relationships and claims yeah. on the estate. And so, the judge wanted uh, another person. Mm -hmm. uh, I was originally called by Arthur, and he wanted me, Arthur and Wallace, that's his son. Yes. He wanted to present my name to the judge. And I was on fairly friendly terms with her. I thought she was crazy. Mm -hmm. uh, cool, you know, but I, I had nothing. I met her a few years ago. Yeah. She... I had nothing personally against her. Yeah. And I just didn't want to come in as an opposition yes. uh, a person. And I told Arthur that uh, I would be willing to have my name presented, but only if she wanted me to, and if she called me. I, then I felt I was coming in as genuinely mm -hmm. amicus curiae mm -hmm. and uh, would do it. And so he spoke to his lawyer, his lawyer called her lawyer, and she did call me. Mm -hmm. And so I came recommended by both sides of the issue, and I was appointed the conservator. Uh, and, uh, well, 
So I was there. Uh, it was most difficult because she's a very difficult person. Mm -hmm. They were both difficult in their own particular ways. Mm -hmm. You could deal with the difficulty of the other side mm -hmm. because there was a little more sanity to it. But hers was so unhinged, yeah. so emotional. Yeah, you know, yeah. Yeah. That was, she became very, very difficult for me. And after a few months, I asked to be replaced. I went into court. The judge was very angry at me. Hmm. Um, and uh, uh, he then appointed for the last, that, this was a month before Roger died, he appointed mm -hmm. uh, his grandson, Andy. Andy? Yeah. The grandson. And that was, was Gummel's son? No, it was, uh, it was Arthur's son. Arthur's son. Yeah. Andy, yeah. And, um, why was it difficult? Was it because they were always calling up and asking to see him or something? Well, it was difficult because I suppose both sides felt, well, he's ill now, but he'll regain his health and his strength. And each one wanted to be at the inside uh, position on the track with him. Yeah, I see. Uh, and um, I don't think any of them knew exactly what was in his will. And there were also benefits. Uh, first of all, she was, uh, to them, uh, an interloper, mm -hmm. and they wanted her out of the picture. This was a family. Yeah. They felt she, she was very responsible for breaking up the family. Yeah. And uh, she, of course, wanted to get in closer so that she could be the one that is holding his hand at his bedside so he would feel warmer toward her. And this was a struggle for position. That's mm -hmm. what it was. Uh, she was less reasoning than the other side, but I think essentially we were both struggling for the same thing. Mm -hmm. And um, each one wanted uh, her, the other one removed. Uh, I gave them each time when they could come there. I didn't want anybody coming in the house in the morning, staying all day and kind of taking over. Yeah. So she had her hours, they had their hours. Mm -hmm. I didn't want any run-ins between his friends and her friends or him and her and whatever it was. I had a, I was a traffic cop in that thing. And I, what I had complete say. It must I could, have taken all of your time just to look after Yes, it did. But, you know, I was close to them all. And, yeah. But uh, then it got kind of unbearable. You know, the phone never, it would just ring right off the hook. Mm. Both sides and both lawyers and everybody demanding that I do this and bar her and what the hell not, you know. Mm. And she would call me and say they're trying to poison him. and. Oh, the craziest accusations, and maybe they're true, but I had no way of knowing. Sure. Anyway, when that when he died, uh, there was struggle too for control of his production company, which owned Rachel the cheap, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, etc. Cetera, et cetera. But when he died, uh, he left her one hundred fifty thousand dollars, which I thought was very, very little compared to what I thought he would leave. I thought it was all the other possible to leave her everything. Because she had quite a hold on him. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, but then they undertook to sue her. Their, their suit, the second suit, they were suing her for money that they claimed she got from him through undue pressures uh, and through some kind of uh, shenanigans and that she'd stolen. The equivalent of stealing from the estate. And this is after he died? After he died. Okay. That's the big lawsuit that was going on yes. more recently. Yes. I thought 
it would be a hundred to one that she'd win that case because she had all the, the glamour people who only saw the superficial aspects of it. Mm -hmm. She threw parties, mm -hmm. she got him to spend money, mm -hmm. and uh, they thought that she was a good influence in his life, and in many ways she undoubtedly was. Mm -hmm. She made him, you know, kind of um, unbend, start spending some money. He was a little bit slow at spending money. Uh, now, Arthur and his two sisters really instituted through the Bank of America with the, with the trustees. Uh, they insisted the Bank of America sue her for money which they claimed belonged in the estate. It had nothing to do with 950000 Nobody contested that. Mm -hmm. When I went to court, I would go to court for either side. I just didn't want to get involved. Could you refuse if you were subpoenaed? Uh, I said, if, if I'm subpoenaed, you can't count on my friendship. Mm -hmm. You know, they won't subpoena you if they feel... Yes. You can always call the other side and say, ask me about this and ask me about that. You know, they When they subpoena you, they're usually fairly sure you're a friendly witness. They're not going to subpoena unfriendly witnesses because mm -hmm. they're not... You see, you can't cross-examine your own witness. You don't want to give you a lecture in the law. Mm -hmm. But if you ask one of the people you called in and you expect the answer, no. And he says, yes. You can't say, what do you mean, yes? You know, you can't cross-examine yeah, your right. own witness. You see, that's a basic in law. That goes way back to Blackstone. Mm -hmm. Now, so I wasn't it, but finally, her lawyer called me and asked me a few questions. He said, why won't you come? And I said, I just don't want to. He said, now, you know, you never saw her abuse Groucho physically. I said, no, I never did. You never saw this. I said, no. He says, well, then I don't have to subpoena you. Just going to ask you that. And I said, no, if you do, I'm going to tear your ass off. He said, I'm just going to ask you those questions. I swear to God. You already told me the answer. If you want to lie about those answers, that's up to you. But I'm going to subpoena you and just ask you what I just asked you on the phone. I said, okay, you want to subpoena me? I'm home. You want to send the man over? He'll be there in 20 minutes. Had <laughs> the guy was here in 20 minutes. And that's all I was asked in the, in the trial. But uh, I went there with George Burns that day because he oh, was yes. going to be a witness. Yes. And we've always been good friends. He brought my wife out here. That's how I met oh, yeah. my wife, you know. And um, we got the telegram framed upstairs when they wired her to say, hold yourself ready, we're going on the coast, etc." And they, took, they brought her out here. Anyway. For the show, you mean? Oh, something. She worked for them. Yeah, oh, she right. worked for Bur Burns. And but um, the point was that Walter Matho came as her witness, that Kellerman Dane came, Sally Kellerman came yes. as her witness, uh, George Burns was her witness, and et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And I thought it would be a breeze. I was watching Burns on the stand, I watched the jury, and I could see the smiles on their faces, and he was telling about the parties that he sang along. But apparently, the Mark's lawyer must have done something that I, I didn't witness in court. I was just there that one day. I read this in the papers that he accused her of being uh, anti-black. There were about five black jurors, and she couldn't have been. She was accused because when I took over, she was kind of running the little production company. She had about five blacks, where you know songs and uh, publishing and all that shit. That they were doing it out of the house. I ordered them all out of the house. I said, "This is a home. It's not a business." But there were blacks, so she was very friendly with blacks. When I stopped in to see her at the little house that she had, she moved everything, the files and time. 
they were still with her. But apparently, that must have been the thing that turned the jury. Those five blacks never forgot it. Really? Yeah, that's my, my own personal theory. Anyway, they want to kill her with about 500,000 bucks. But I saw her lawyer at lunch the day that I was subpoenaed. I ran into him. I went to the Holiday Inn. He came in the dining And he said, I don't give a shit how much they, if they win. They'll never get a dime. He must have known what he's saying. I don't think they've ever gotten a dime. I think so, she's contesting it still. I don't know whether she has formally appealed. She may have. Maybe she has. The reason I say I don't think she has formally contested it is that if she wants to take a case on appeal, she has to put up a bond for the, the amount. Mm -hmm. Well, I would think that's the last thing in the world she wants to do because nothing would make them happier because the other way they have to go searching for her assets. Mm -hmm. This way, if some company is putting up a bond, if they win, they go right for the bond and they got 500 and something thousand in cash. So these are the complications of the case. Mm -hmm. Uh, but you may be right. I haven't heard. I don't think so. I haven't heard anything about that. Mm. But I, I stay away from. It. I see Arthur Marks almost every day at the tennis club. Do you really? Which we Beverly Hills. Uh, belonged yeah. for fifty-four years or so since maybe one. I saw him over there about ten years ago. Oh, were you there? Uh, yeah. Well, the reason I didn't ask you well, because I just got home from golf and I just oh, had you? enough time to shower. Yeah. Where was that? No, I played pinball. I played today. Um, you know, fool that I was, I, I drove the Hillcrest because I wanted to see it, but yeah. naturally I didn't get very far. Uh, who, uh, how did you get, who got you to the Beverly Hills Tennis Club? Arthur. I called him up ahead. What did you call Arthur? Yeah. Did he say she's got it on appeal? That's what he said. Yeah. Well, I think the appeal is pending, but she may. I can't believe that she put up a bond for that thing. If she did, they're pretty lucky. Mm. But of course, they may lose the case on appeal. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I think that's a very sorry thing that the drag on through the news. Mm -hmm. That was terrible. It lasted for a long time. He was stubborn. I think he regrets it. Because I know what those legal be, uh, bills are. They'll never, even if they get the money to a bond, yeah. uh, it will have cost them much more than what they will recover. So she wouldn't have to pay legal expenses then. She simply has to pay the original um, sum that they requested. She's had paying lawyer. She owes fuck. Every lawyer in town she owes money to. But her lawyer claimed, he told me that they were doing the case without a fee. The reasoning I assume would be, he, he's from Belli, Melvin Belli, who's a yes. very famous lawyer. He's from that office. I think that if she wins the case finally on appeal, that she will have a multi, multi-million dollar lawsuit against the trustees, Bank of America, and everybody else. Defamation of character, libel, slander, etc., etc. And that, I think, is what they're gunning for. That's their yeah. criminal action. This is their dish. So I think they were doing this to try to get her set up in a proper position for this big lawsuit, which they might get an enormous fee. I, suing the Bank of America, if you win, you can get the money. You know? Yes, I think so. I was appalled by her behavior in the courtroom. I just, I thought, is she possibly doing this for a reason? But I don't think she had any control over it. She was I don't think she does either. She's emotionally very chaotic, very wacky. Sad that it happened. I wonder if you can help me put 
things in perspective as far as your career goes. You know, you you started in 1931 as a screenwriter. And then you were a team with Arthur Sheikman yeah. for a number of years. When did you, uh, when did you number one become a solo writer, and when did you? I would think it would be around 1937. Became uh -huh. a solo writer, and I worked through all those years pretty regularly. Then I went to Metro, and I stayed in Metro a number of years as a writer originally, then as a producer. I did several Wallace Beery pictures. I did one of the Thin Man pictures. You did? Both as writer and producer. Yeah, which one? Song of the Thin Man. Something at the last one, right? Yeah. Yeah, uh, I remember that one. And well. uh, it was a good movie. Mm -hmm. And that had a lot of well-known people. It had Keenan Wynn. Yes. And Leonard? Sheldon Leonard? Was he uh, I don't remember Sheldon Leonard. He may have been. I don't remember. He may have been. He pops up in the couple. Kind of a heavy. And um, you had Audrey Meadows was the girl. Oh, yeah. Uh, she's Mrs. Steve Allen now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, um, what the hell else we had? We had, um, Don, uh, uh, he's a director now. His last picture was Huckleberry Finn. Well, I don't remember. <laughs> it was a big cast. Leon Ames was in it. He played the, the heavy. Um, and, of course, Lloyd. And a lawyer, yeah. William Powell, uh, and I did quite a number of Red Skelton pictures. Mm -hmm. I did Abbott and Costello pictures. Um, as producer or writer? Uh, Abbott and Costello I did as a writer. Wallace Beery I did a few pictures as producer. Um, and um, I did a picture. Uh, it was kind of a cute picture called Miss Grant Takes Richmond with Lucy O'Ball and William Holden. Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, down the line. And I did a lot of television after that. I Including did the, I did the Adams the, Family. Yeah, I did that. That's too. what I remember. What other television have you done? Oh, I did the, um, the crazy lady, um, Phyllis Diller show. Phyllis Diller show? Yeah, I, I didn't did, even know she had a show. Uh, sure. And I did the Red Button show. And I, and I did... A, a show that was quite a hit show, but it was, you may not have been around yet. It was called My Friend Irma with Marie Irma, Wilson. Irma, yes. Yeah, My Friend Irma. That was in the I early was, 50s. Yeah, that's right. They're quite a buff, huh? Well, you Stuff. know, I, I like uh, things of quality. Mm -hmm. Occasionally they pop up. Yeah. I did, oddly enough, too, I did a whole series of westerns called Death, Death Valley Days. Oh, yeah. I did that for four years. Wasn't uh, Mr. Reagan? Well, he was in it. Yeah, well, he was just the commentator. He'd get the show off the ground. Uh -huh. And um, before him, we had a fellow who started the show. You know, that thing had a life of about 32 years or more, starting with radio and right into television. Uh, and when it started, the, those shows were based on facts, historical facts, mm. and while everything in the episode wasn't factual, yeah. the spirit of every show had to be factual. Yeah. And before the sponsors who were U.S. Borax Company, 20 Mule Team Borax, mm -hmm. before they would approve any premise for a, a screenplay and, you know, filming, you'd have to give them the, the premise and give them the documentation 
So you'd, you'd send over two or three books. Oh, with yeah? the, uh, oh, yes. Oh, yes. It had to be in some history really? books as an authentic fact. I presume they had a slide at the beginning that, that denoted that it was based on uh, I don't remember now whether we did or we didn't. I'm curious they would make such a... But the, but the uh, old ranger would always set the story. Yeah. And you had to know it was facts because so many names that appeared that, that you knew through history, you know, uh, were mentioned. And um, that was a very interesting show. Uh, and I enjoyed doing that because I'm, I've always been a history buff. Oh. And, um, so anyway. I don't know how I got out got off on that. You, asked you were a producer of uh, yeah. Death Valley. Yeah. How did you get involved with the Adams family? Somebody called me and said, we need you desperately. <laughs> so I said, how much? <laughs> and when I said how much, I didn't mean how much did you need me, how much would I get? Yes. And so I did it, that's all. And um, thought it would be kind of a fun show. And I enjoyed working on that. Did Charles More Adams than any, have much involvement with that? No, he was in the East. No involvement at all. He just had the characters. That's right. Um, he had to approve uh, handling, all, you know, the basic things before we got going, mm -hmm. and he did. Uh, I loved everybody around that show. I loved Carolyn Jones. She died yes. much too soon. Yes. And I Johnny. loved Johnny Ashton, and I loved... It was it was a, a real little fraternity, a mixture, surrounding but we loved each other. We had a great time doing the show when the show was doing well or it wasn't doing so well. We had a ball and it was real fun yeah. doing that. Not easy, but it was fun. It's really a, a unique entity in the yeah. television. Yes, it was. I heard a story that Jackie Coogan was trying to get the part. He wasn't really selling himself too well, so what he did was actually dress the part. He shaved his head. He may have done that. that would be before I... You see, they did a, a ten-minute uh, presentation. Uh, had a little gag here, a little gag there. And that's how they really got going. But Jackie was writing the presentation. But they couldn't seem to get a script. They couldn't get script number one. And that's when I was called in. So I was there right from the first show. And, uh, what have you done since Adams? Uh, I did a couple of feature films. Yeah, yeah I did. Um, I sold the original script and got Bob Hope. I had the whole setup. I have a piece of it on the phone, a picture called I'll Take Sweden. Oh, the yeah. Bob Hope picture. And I did um, an Elvis Presley picture. and the original story on that. Got mm -hmm. that on the way called Frankie and Johnny. So you continued writing even though yeah, you some each other. Which uh, reminds me, I want to ask you uh, which job you prefer, which title you prefer, producer or writer? In television. Oh, I, I, producer is fun always. But I always had it. You see, in television, they don't need a producer in the truest sense of the word because there's no producing to do. The cast is the same, mm -hmm. the sets are the same, oh, yeah. Yeah, the characters are. So what they need is somebody who will, you know, do the few details, get the extra four or five people you may need for an episode, mm -hmm. and there's always some little problem. So somebody has to be in charge of the store. Mm -hmm. But the main function, especially in a comedy show, is to kind of give them 
nobody can guarantee a script, you know, that's a real workable script. But at least they have more assurance with a writer-producer that if scripts come in from the writers who just want to get their scripts done, go on to the next one, you know, because they were getting flat fees. You know, get, you got a rewrite out of them and a little polish, but they were always anxious to go get it done in as short a time as possible. And so you did an awful lot of writing uh, in television. In film, you really had to put the whole project together. And if you were a writer, well, you, you were doing two jobs, two jobs, because there was nothing there before the picture was put together. There was no store there then, you know, like in TV. Every week you're at the same store. Yeah. So this. It's funny. I never thought of that. There's, a, there's a real big difference. Well, uh, what are you doing these days? Well, these days I'm enjoying life. Oh, it's about time. I, I play golf. Then I go to the Beverly Hills Tennis Club. Yeah. I won't go today because I'm. Go my wife and I are going down to San Diego with a couple of friends. Why are you really? We just, we love San Diego. We like to have dinner at Anthony's and a few other places. Yeah. And it's just a little break. But I love getting out in the mornings and playing golf and then going over to the tennis club. I don't play tennis anymore. But I play gin rummy or bridge. And we have a, a very healthy social life, my wife and I, people we like very much. And um, so. Well, that sounds like a good time. Oh, yeah. It's. There's no no point working now just to make the extra money because I can't use any extra money. I would do things that I might like very much, but you just can't. I would the demand for me would be for a wacky comedy or something like mm -hmm. that. I wouldn't want to do that just for the money. You know, no way, no way at all. And there you have it. Soon after that. Uh Nat threw Jay out of the house, and uh, <laughs> so listening to it again, uh, does it bring back any memories or anything come back to you? Well, at one point, I'm trying to remember if I brought up the Adams family or what it was, but it was some non-Marx project that he worked on, and he kind of uh, sat back a little bit, and he said, gee, you must be quite a buff. And I thought, well, I mean, <laughs> your output is so significant. And I was impressed that he seemed to be impressed by what limited knowledge I had of his career. And I made a little joke at his expense because originally this interview was published in Paul Wesolowski's Fredonia Gazette. And just to add a little color... I had a joke at the end of the piece about him trying to uh, serve me something, being a gracious host, and he scrummaged around the kitchen, and the best he could come up with at the time was an unchilled can of beer. Not a big deal, but when I wrote the piece, I kind of played that up. I said, well, you know, here he is serving me a tepid beer, and what am I going to make of this? But the only reason I bring it up now is because when Paul published this thing, I sent a copy to Nat, which, of course, allowed him to see this little joke of mine, very, very tiny, minuscule joke of mine about a tepid beer. 
But when he wrote back, he said um, something to the effect of in his penmanship, he wrote, uh, you did a first-rate job, and then P.S., sorry about that beer. So uh, I just thought that was quaint. <laughs> but there you are joking around with a Marx Brothers writer. I mean, a guy who supplied the Marx Brothers with jokes. And you're good-naturedly uh, bantering in print about uh, the temperature of the beer he served to you. That is a, that's a credit to you, sir. Well, it also shows you how comfortable he made me. I wouldn't be kidding around with Aaron Fleming, for example. I, I would be loath to joke around with her. I don't know that I did. Not as <laughs> so I with Aaron, you would say, oh, thank you for the beer. It's perfect. It's just how I exactly. like it. Exactly. I'd be damn lucky to get it, too. You know, reading the flywheel scripts and listening to the few excerpts we have and the reenactments that were done, it's just a real shame that more of this material wasn't reused by the team later on and, you know, at MGM and some of their other films. Obviously, a bunch was used in Duck Soup, but that's about it. But there are just hours and hours of great exchanges and great gags that uh, basically was lost to history once those radio shows aired. Yeah, you're right. You're right. And um, the fact that you're indicating that one of those flywheels uh, was somehow interpreted into the big store must have everything to do with Nat Perrins since he did the original yeah. story for that right. film. I've never been able to decipher whether he got credit on it because he actually worked on the film in the 1940s or whether they just gave him credit because they had recycled one of his old flywheel scripts. Mm. Well, um, I wish you had brought that up about 36 years ago because I <laughs> could have put the question to Nat. <laughs> A little late now, Bob. So, so, so it sounds like you were in touch with him after... The interview, you stayed in touch with him for a while? Very, very briefly. I just sent him the piece and then um, gave him a, a short phone call uh, some years later. So he was close with Groucho in those later years. Was he uh, friendly with the other brothers? I, I doubt it. Um, I'm thinking of Zeppel, and I, I don't think he had a friendship with Zeppel. Who so, did? Well, <laughs> Gummel, possibly. Yeah. <laughs> I love in the interview, um, there are moments when you just realize you're talking to a great comedy writer and you can kind of see or at least hear his mind at work. Uh, and there's the moment when you're asking him, forget which which job in particular it is, but he's saying, uh, they, they said they really needed me and I said, how much? And I didn't mean how much do you need me? I meant how much money? Uh, you know, I mean, like you can see, oh, he's got the kind of mind that in investigates every word for double meanings. Oh, yeah, that sounds yeah. like something Groucho would say. It's very Groucho, yeah. Okay, gents, I think that's going to about do it for this episode and the series of the Jay Hopkins interviews. Um, actually, we do have one more in the can that we may be able to salvage, but I wouldn't hold your breath. Uh, and actually, if we did salvage it, I wouldn't hold your breath either. Yeah, it's a bad idea. Yeah, yeah. Jay, once again, thank you so much for uh, letting us uh, run these interviews, and thanks for keeping them all these years, and thanks for doing them. It's just been a real honor to be part of this uh, little piece of Mark's history. Well, as I've said before, um, I'm grateful to you, gentlemen, for giving it a little air, you know, getting it out of the shoebox. And uh, obviously doing the edit, that's a pretty significant job. So I continue to thank you, Bob, for that, for your skills in that regard. And as always, we throw it to an unprepared Jay to introduce the final song. 
Well, if that's a serious offer, I was thinking that in honor of monkey business, maybe you could dig up a swell recording of You Brought a New Kind of Love to Me that Frank Sinatra recorded for reprise in the mid-60s. It's a short piece, and it's very entertaining. I'll see whether the Sinatra estate lets us use it. <laughs> The nightingales could sing like you They'd sing much sweeter than they do For you brought a new kind of love to me And if the Sandman brought me dreams of you I'd want to sleep my whole life through You brought a new to me I know that I'm the slave You're the queen Still you can understand That underneath it all You're a maid And I am only a man I would work and slave The whole day through If I could hurry home to you You brought a new kind of love to me What kind of shady uh, place did you bring these negatives to? It sounds like uh, you brought them to uh, Ravelli or something. <laughs> I brought them to CVS Pharmacy because I knew that they used to de develop photos. And I went to three of them before they even knew what I was talking about when I said, do you develop photos from 35 millimeter negatives? And even that third time, they seemed a little confused. And the prevailing policy is that you don't get the negatives back? Yeah, I don't get it. <laughs> Why wouldn't they send them back? So they, they said they were going to burn them to a disc. Okay, but I haven't seen anything in three weeks. So. Well, well, burning them, that's, isn't that something you would do? 
<laughs> I've done this with some other negatives, which I'd rather okay. not describe. Okay. <laughs> and more than a few positives. Yes, this is true. So the status is, you know, you may be getting them back, you may not. Exactly. But you owe them money either way. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if they billed me anyway. <laughs>